diving deeper into stories. Stories are the backbone of the Bible. If you had one genre that you would pick that defines most of the Bible, it would be stories. Now, we tend to sit up and take notice with a good story. It compels our attention. The Bible, as a narrative, invites us into the story and invites us to look a little bit deeper into the story than we often do. Sometimes these stories are historical in nature, and there's an element of that in the book of Jonah. Sometimes these stories are allegorical. They're meant to tell us something else. Sometimes these stories are a bit mystical because we've never experienced some of the things these stories talk about, and we often wonder, did that really happen? Sometimes these stories are symbolic, and couched underneath the storyline is something deeper than what we initially see. I'm kind of curious, those of you who have had a lot of exposure over your life in church, um, how many of you have uh, heard the story of Jonah used on kind of like a flannel graph board? Do you remember the old flannel graphs, you know, cut out pieces of felt and you have a board and it's put on there and so on and so forth? And that's a great way to tell the story uh, to a children's Sunday school class. However, this is not a Sunday school story. It is very deep, and it is one of those things that I think is defined by what Paul says in this passage out of 1 Corinthians 13. The love chapter of the Bible, where Paul is talking about the qualities of love, he says this toward the end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, when I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, what he is talking about is obviously the quality of love in the midst of some of the problems at the Corinthian church. However, this is a very, very good way of thinking about stories. You can think about a story as a child, and you like that it's an action-adventure. But as you grow and as you become more mature, it's more than just action and adventure. In many ways, it becomes something that is compelling, that changes you, or at least changes the way you look at something. Now, I did a previous series back in 2018 called Once Upon a Time. And you can go back on our website and you can find this, and you'll find some of the different types of stories. And this series is not a repeat of that. Rather, it is looking at something much deeper than what we normally look at. How many of you have ever gone snorkeling? Okay? So you're able to get under the water a little bit, right? And you're able to see a little bit below the water line. How many of you have ever done scuba diving? No, me neither. That's where you get really deep. You can go down and you can see the coral and you can see the different color fish and you can see the things that uh, are along the deeper level of the water. Sometimes people scuba dive to find some of the treasures that they can find, especially in the sea. 
Well, when you think about stories, think about swimming, surface level. Think about snorkeling, right below the level. And think about scuba diving, going very deep. Each story has those levels to it. Swimming, snorkeling, and scuba diving. And when we think about scuba, the first thing that comes to my mind is Jacques Cousteau. How many of you remember Jacques Cousteau? Okay, and the stories he told about the things that he found below the water line in the sea. Well, when we think about stories in this capacity, and that's all I'm talking about today, more than talking about a specific story, although I'll illustrate it with Jonah, I want us to think about what do these stories mean? These stories that are told in the Bible have a couple of different elements to it. What did it mean to those that recorded and copied those stories and passed it down as part of their folklore? And what do these stories mean to us who live in a very different context in the 21st century? So you can take stories, and as you do so, sometimes what you understand is it had a certain meaning in that day and age, but over the course of time, those stories took on additional meaning as well. There is a big, big difference between taking the Bible literally and taking the Bible seriously. When we take the Bible literally, we say, okay, this is a historical event, therefore we go looking for proof that a man could be swallowed by a fish. And there have been occasions where that has happened. Or, why can't we find Noah's Ark? It's got to be around here somewhere. And after all these thousands of years, it's never been found. That's because sometimes the stories are not meant to be taken historically, they are meant to be taken symbolically. Now, the key question is, will we take that seriously or not? Because it's much easier to try to fight for the historical elements and ignore the deeper message that the uh, story is telling us. So, what you'll find within Christianity is there's a whole bunch of people that take the Bible literally, but they won't take it seriously. That brings us back to that passage I read out of Matthew chapter 12. The scribes and the Pharisees were taking their religion literally. You do this on this day, you can't do that on this day. But they didn't take it seriously because the things that they did to take advantage of other people, to take money from other people, Jesus comes along and he says, I'm not going to give you any more ammunition as far as whether I am who I say I am because you already have enough information. The real issue is, are you willing to change your heart? Are you willing to change your perspective? Are you willing to change your behavior? And of course, the Pharisees and the other religious leaders had a harder time with that. Every story has a larger context. And we must understand that cultural context if we're going to understand the main points of the story. Sometimes these stories have within them things that 
only relate to the people that were in that day and age when the story was written. Sometimes there are elements to the story that carries over well. But like any library, the Bible contains various kinds of literature, and sometimes the different books interact with each other, and they convene together with the bigger story that is being told. And the Bible is that. There's a lot of different stories. But there you see Jesus in Matthew chapter 12. It wasn't a story isolated only to the time of Jonah. It's a story that also related to what he was doing in his ministry. And he uses the symbolism of Jonah to talk about his own conquering of death through the resurrection. And that then becomes the impetus for change that should come from those that are religious but they're not necessarily, not necessarily serious about taking Jesus' teaching to heart. Now, this has been a common occurrence throughout the course of Christianity. Many times, culture wars are developed with one-verse thinking. I know a lot of Christians in my time in the ministry that have a hobby horse of some sort, and sometimes it's a cultural type of war that they're insistent upon this being the truth. But they dive into the Bible and they pull a verse here or pull a verse there. And they try to prove their case by one verse isolation. It's far better to see the bigger story. It's far better to see how these stories are interacting with each other and connected to each other. Because that one-verse thinking is rarely helpful to us in our life. Rather, these stories are worth hard thinking about. And when we think about these stories at a deeper level, we suddenly begin to see not only humanity for what it is, but we begin to see ourselves a little bit more for who we are. And here's a point I'm trying to make. You are your stories. Think about your own upbringing. You are a product of all the stories that you have heard within your family circle, within your education, and so forth. These stories have shaped how you see yourself, how you see your world, and your place within the world. And of course, the first great storytellers in your life were your parents and grandparents, your school, and then to a certain extent, the popular culture that you grew up in. I will always be a child of the 70s. That's when I grew up. That culture influenced the way I saw the world. And so wherever you kind of found your childhood, whatever, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever it may be, in many ways that shapes who we are because of the stories that have been told. Now, there are healthy stories that are told well, and there are destructive stories that we need to let go of. All stories and all choices that come from them are not equal. We cannot live our stories alone either. My story connects to yours, and your story connects to mine. Such an awareness helps us to understand a shared commitment in our world. Some of our stories show how broken our, our experience in life is. I think right now our culture is living in the middle of a broken story. 
And that is the false narrative that the only way you can conquer violence is with more violence. And I think that is coming out, oh my goodness, over the last couple of years, I keep thinking, how are all of these shootings that we see happening? Well, it's a part of a broken story in the culture at large. And as a result of that, broken societies that struggle with the stories that shape them will find that it takes a lot of hard work to break out of those stories. Now, we could talk about gun legislation and all those other type of things, but in some ways, it goes much deeper. It goes much deeper. It has something to do with who we hate, who we want to scapegoat, who we want to get rid of. It has to do with violence. Stories tell me not only who I am, but who we are. And as a result of that, many of us, to use the symbolism of Jonah here, are found in the water. And like fish, we just swim in the water and we breathe in and breathe out the water that we live in. So let's come to Jonah for a second and see what this story is about. So as we dive deeper into Jonah, what we're going to find is there's four chapters. These four chapters in Jonah talk about an individual that we don't know a whole lot about, to tell you the truth. Jonah is considered a prophet, but if you read the book of Jonah and you look at the way the book of Jonah reads, it's not like the other prophets in the Old Testament. The other prophets seem to have a message for the nation of Israel. They've been called by God to tell uh, their own people straighten up. However, Jonah is a, a message not to his own people, or is it? We're told in chapter 1 that Jonah receives a commission to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So Jonah is to go and to say, repent, God's judgment is coming upon you as a society. Well, as we take a deeper dive into Jonah, we ask the question, who was Jonah? And we're not told except this one line, the very first uh, verse of the book. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. That's it. <laughs> That's all we know about Jonah. But if we look at three pieces of information that come out of that line, what we do know is this. His name means dove. The name Jonah means dove. Now, what is a dove usually associated with? Peace, right? Okay. He is the son of Amittai. Don't know who that is either, but his father's name means truth. So Jonah and the symbolism of his name, peace, and his father, truth, is somehow talking about the truth of a way of creating peace in our world. Now, this is quite a challenge because what we find is he is told to go to a place that he hates and talk to a people that he hates. 
And the key question will become, how did he respond? Did he respond favorably or did he respond in such a way that he wants to run away? Well, here's what it says. Verse 3 of chapter 1, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, here's a map that kind of tells us what's going on here. So Jonah is told to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is the capital city of a great empire of the Assyrians. Now, in the Old Testament, the Assyrians and the Babylonians are the great enemies against the nation of Israel. And so Jonah is told to go to this capital city of Nineveh and to preach against it and say, if you don't repent, repent from what? Well, the Assyrians were a very vicious people, violent They were a group of people that were brutal when they conquered their enemies and tortured them and and those type of things. So naturally, there's great hatred toward the Ninevites. What Jonah does is he goes to this port city called Joppa. And as he goes to Joppa, he finds a ship. And there he gets aboard and he is going to go to Tarshish. This is all the way over in Spain. He's running as far away as he can from Nineveh. Now, what we know is this, that as he travels, he thinks that he can get away. And here's why. It was believed in that culture that God's only had a certain territorial domain okay so his God obviously was the God of the Israelites around Jerusalem here if he can get out of that vicinity then he's not under the pursuit of that God because that God only reigns in a certain area if he can get as far away over here the gods that rule the territory of Spain, they could care less about his commission to go to Nineveh, right? Okay, that's the mentality. That's the cultural idea that's going on here. So as he gets on the boat, just to summarize, a great wind comes. This storm tosses him about. He goes down into the bowels of the ship, and as he goes down below deck, He falls into a deep sleep. And what we find is that those that are on the ship, they're beginning to worry and they're throwing cargo overboard to try to somehow get through this storm. And Jonah is oblivious. He's oblivious. He can sleep through anything. So what we find is the captain goes down below the deck and says to Jonah, how can you have this deep sleep? Get up, get up, and call on your God so that we might be saved from this storm. And then the sailors say to each other, let's cast lots to find who is responsible for this storm. Another cultural thing. If something bad is happening... Someone is to blame. Let's cast lots to determine who the scapegoat is. 
Well, the lot falls on Jonah. And they say to him, where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And they get terrified. And the sea's getting rougher and they want to turn around and they want to get back to the coast. And then Jonah says this, pick me up and throw me into the sea. This is verse 12 of chapter 1. And it will become calm. Now, the image of the story is he gets going lower and lower and lower. The literal translation is he was going down to Joppa. When he gets on the boat, he goes down into the bowels of the ship. And then when they throw him overboard, he goes down into the sea. And then in chapter 2, there's this fish that swallows him. He's down in the belly of the fish. Are you following what I'm saying? The symbolism is he's running from God and his life continues to go down, down, down. So God appoints this fish to swallow him. And what we find is that chapter 2, the video that you watched, he cries out to God. Now what's interesting here is chapter 2 of Jonah are all quotations from the book of Psalms. So this prayer is really a collection of different Psalms. So this isn't probably Jonah's prayer per se, but this is the editor taking a collection of all kinds of Psalms that you find in the Old Testament, piecing it together and putting it into Jonah's mouth so that it shows that finally he comes to his senses and he is able to come up out of the bowels of the sea and be able to have a second chance. Chapter 3 then Verse 1 says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it this message that I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city and he would travel across the city and preach 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But you know what happens? The Ninevites believe. And they begin to take another cultural thing, sackcloth and ashes, and put, them, put that on themselves as a sign of their sorrow for the way that they had treated other people. So to put the whole book together, we can look at it like this. In chapter 1, he's in flight. He's been called to go to Nineveh, but he's consumed by the sea. And then he's in the fish, and he's calling on God to get him out of that situation Finally, he arrives in Nineveh where he puts out a calling for the people to repent. And then in chapter 4, interestingly enough, after all of these people turn their heart to God, and there's a funny thing that happens here. Um, it tells us in the text that not only uh, do the people repent, but the king puts out a decree and the decree says, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. It's not only the people that are repenting, it's the animals too. 
So there's irony and comedy that's going on here. Their repentance is so thorough that even the animals have sackcloth on, okay? So then in chapter uh, 3, after we see this change of heart, what we find is that uh, Jonah goes outside the city and he sits down and he begins to pout. And verse 1 of chapter 4 says, but, Jonah's, uh, but to Jonah this seemed very wrong that the people repented. And he was angry and he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said when I was still at home? This is what I was, uh, that is why I tried to forestall fleeing to Tarshish. I knew, and here's the point. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. His anger, his hatred was so great that he would rather not live than be able to see that this is not just the God of the Israelites, it's the God of all people. This is a God that does not send calamity. This is a God that has great compassion for all people, wherever they are on the face of the earth. And whatever they have done, as bad as it is, these Ninevites and the Assyrians were terrible. So, a revival, in many respects, takes place despite Jonah. Jonah proceeds to the city and it's there he says what God tells him to say and all the people have ears to hear. And then Jonah gets mad. And so he's sitting outside the city like this, right? Pouting. And it gets hot. The sun's beating down on him. And as the sun beats down on him, he wants to die. And what happens next is God, it says, raises a plant up. Again, historicity is not a part of all this. It's not like a plant can grow this tall overnight. But what we find taking place is a plant comes up and it provides shade for him. And then that plant dies and it withers. And Jonah gets mad that the plant has died because now he's back in misery under the sun. And this is what God says at the very end of the book. It's kind of the point. The Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. And that's the way the book ends. You're concerned about this plant, even though you didn't do anything to cause it to grow or to cause it to die, but that's all you're worried about is you, 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 you. In the city of Nineveh are men and women and boys and girls and animal life that I cherish. And I love. And it is there that I wanted you to speak a message of reconciliation and forgiveness. It's there that I wanted you to see that I can do something in the heart of even your enemy. It's something that I can do even in the hearts of those that you hate. 
and then the book just drops off. Interesting. Why would that book end the way that it ends? The key is his confession in chapter 4. Jonah knew that God was merciful and compassionate, but he wanted to keep that all for himself. He didn't want that to go out to everyone. Rather, he wanted to make sure that he was the one that somehow controlled God and controlled the blessings of God. He had a wrong mindset about God. He had a wrong concept about God. This is the God of all creation. This is the God that is able to love everyone on the face of the earth at the same time. Are the Ninevites sinners? Yes. But so are the Israelites. And so are we. And yet we often carry this wrong concept about God, that God loves us only because we are, you fill in the blank. God is a God that loves all people. And His love is boundless for everyone. And He does all that is possible to help us change our nationalistic lens and understand that God is the one who gives a great gift to all of us and that is to ask the question in the story, where are we in the story? Are we like Jonah, that we're so prejudiced, that we are hateful toward other people that God loves? So the author of Jonah uses him, the character in the story is kind of like a foil, a character in contrast to demonstrate the largeness of God's love. Jonah's heart is small, God's heart is big. And these are people that God does not deny, exclude, or erase. Think about the different pockets of people that get blamed for a lot of things in our society. And think of them not just as the target or scapegoat for those of us who want to feel better about ourselves or cast blame for the problems we encounter in the world. Rather, think of all people as those that are loved by God, people that should understand that God loves them, that should understand that God does not hate them, right? And how does that change our heart? Are we like Jonah in the story? Or maybe we're like the sailors that are a little bit superstitious and as crazy as it sounds, they throw Jonah overboard. Maybe we are like the Ninevites. Maybe we have been somehow conditioned in a way to be violent and hateful toward other people. These stories are meant to put a spotlight back on us. And we go, oh, I'm like Jonah. My heart needs to get bigger. Oh, I'm like the Ninevite. My heart needs to get softer. I'm like the sailors. <laughs> My heart needs to get a better understanding of the ways of God. So I ran across this quote by Walter Wink. He wrote a book called Engaging the Powers, and I'm going to close with this. It's called The Gift of the Enemy. He says, this is the gift our enemy may bring to us. Aspects of ourselves that we cannot discover any other way than through our enemies. Our friends seldom show us our flaws. 
They are our friends precisely because they are able to overlook or ignore those parts of us. The enemy is therefore not merely a hurdle to be leaped over on the way to God. Our enemy might actually be the way to God. We cannot come to terms with our own inner shadows except through our enemies. We have almost no other access to those unacceptable parts of ourselves that need redeeming except through the mirror that our enemies hold up to us. And I think that's true in Jonah. In some ways, the Ninevites is holding up a mirror to Jonah. Jonah, your heart is small. Your heart has been corrupted to think that these enemies are not loved by God and so forth, right? And you can tease that out in a variety of ways. But you don't get to it if you think this story is only about a runaway prophet that's swallowed by a fish. You've got to get deeper into the story to see that what this story is doing is confronting the Israelites on their attitudes toward people that are not Israelites. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay? And that's the way the book works for us as well. 